It's the Victorian Variety Show. This was a trick of the late Alexander Herman. In the center of the stage is placed a light table with three legs and a plush top. The prestidigitator moves his hand over the table. Suddenly, it rises in the air and follows his hands wherever he moves them. The secret of the trick will be easily understood by reference to our engraving. A small nail is driven in the center of the table. This nail is not noticed by the audience and the plush top tends to hide it. The magician wears a ring which is flattened on the inner surface and a small notch is filed in it. The ring is placed on the middle finger of the right hand. The hand is spread over the table until the notch fits under the head of the nail. The table can then be lifted with great ease and it appears to follow the hand of the conjurer in obedience to the magic wand. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I take a look behind the scenes of an historical period that's talked about a lot, but also is often misunderstood because the information is presented in a certain way or it's not as detailed as it could be. So I like to look at that information from a different perspective and focus on some of those lesser known details. My name is Marissa and the excerpt I just read is a description of the magic table a trick associated with French magician Alexander Herman, who was born in 1844 and died in 1896, which appeared in a book called Magic, Stage Illusions and Scientific Diversions, including Trick Photography, edited by Albert A. Hopkins and originally published in 1897, although you can find more recent editions of it on Amazon or through other online booksellers. In my previous episode, in which I talked about the history of stage magic and the conditions that helped the Victorian era become something of a quote-unquote golden age for stage magic, I mentioned that I was going to focus on tricks and illusions in this episode. But then, while I was putting this episode together, I decided to search for articles on Victorian-era stage magic and illusion on JSTOR, which is one of my favorite databases because of the wealth of information on there. But because of that wealth of information, it's very easy to fall down a rabbit hole, which is what happened to me. Those articles actually talked about imperialism and some other phenomena that I've discussed in previous episodes and how those tie in with what was going on in the world of stage magic. And although I really want to discuss it and I feel it needs to be discussed, I honestly need a little more time to do some more research and process it all. So as promised, I'm still going to cover tricks and illusions that caught my eye in this episode, but I'm mainly going to read the descriptions of those as they appeared in Hopkins' book, 
for the simple reason that I'm not so well-versed in stage magic. And then, in my next episode in two weeks, I'm hoping to talk about some of the great information that I found on JSTOR and explain why I think it's important to consider when looking at Victorian stage magic. Before I talk about any more tricks or illusions, however, I'm going to tell you a bit more about the Hopkins book, which is not the only magic book published during the Victorian era that I saw online, but it does seem to be one of the most comprehensive, if not the most comprehensive. It's broken down into five smaller books, in addition to illusions that were modern at the time, there's a section on ancient magic. Another section is devoted to automata and curious toys. There are lots of photographic diversions, which, among other things, include a number of different photos of people's heads in the center of a table or in a wheelbarrow or sitting on the seat of a chair or something like that. Victorians seem to have loved decapitation photos, which I discovered a few months before I found out about the Hopkins book, and I can't say it really surprised me. There's also a long chapter on theaters, set design, and stage layout. So even though its title refers to it as a magic book, it's really about much more than magic. So it made sense to me that many of the explanations of tricks and illusions in the Hopkins book originally appeared in Scientific American magazine in the 1890s. After all, as I explained in my previous episode, many 19th century stage magicians considered themselves quote-unquote men of science. Some of them, like Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin and Jean Neville Maskelyne even had backgrounds as clock and watchmakers and were inventors. However, as David Gorian explains in Selected Illustrations from a Victorian Book on Magic published in 1897, it seems that the identity of the person or persons behind the magazine articles wasn't known for some time and that a number of magicians, most notably the American Harry Keller, were upset that a so-called spy was revealing the secrets behind their acts to the public. At any rate, toward the end of 1897, all of the tricks that had originally appeared in the magazine were compiled into one edition, and additional information, such as descriptions of special effects in the theater, were added. If you're interested in exploring stage magic and illusions further, I would definitely recommend that you check out other books on this topic. But the Hopkins book, which is the name that I use for the book for consistency's sake, and which I'm also going to include a link to in the show notes along with all of the other sources I consulted in putting this episode together, is a great book to start with. Not only because it's so comprehensive, but also because it's so much fun to read the descriptions. And the illustrations are quite weird, but I think in a fantastic way. So with no further ado, it's time for some tricks. Since we were just talking about decapitation, I'm going to start with one of my favorite tricks in the book, which is called, appropriately enough, decapitation. It does involve clowns. So, if you suffer from chorophobia, 
which is the term for an extreme fear of clowns. I do apologize. Fortunately, it's not too long a description. Having covered Victorian views on death, and perhaps as a result of those, the rather twisted sense of humor that many Victorians had, in previous episodes, it makes sense to me that they were fans of illusions involving decapitation, which a number of famous stage acts of the time, such as Maskeline and Cook, included in their shows. Based on posters I've seen for their shows, particularly at the Egyptian Hall in London, it seems like one of the duo, usually George Cook, I believe, was losing his head on a regular basis. In Death is Not the End, a Victorian book of magic and illusion, Megan McRae suggests that many popular illusions of this period were like special effects, which suggested that the impossible really might be possible. And that, as a result, what Victorian audiences really wanted to see from tricks like this was that death, quote, was not final, that life appeared to end, but in fact carried on, end quote. The means employed in this illusion is the old-fashioned defunct method of decapitation. And although this lacks the refinement and scientific interest of execution by electricity, it has a certain precision. The poor clown who suffers the death penalty 12 times a week usually enters the circus ring or appears on the stage, as the case may be, and after performing certain acrobatic feats, commits some crime against his fellows for which he is condemned to die. He is placed upon the block. His head is covered with a cloth. Harlequin approaches as executioner and begins to cut with a huge knife across the victim's neck. In a moment, all is over. The cloth is removed and Harlequin lifts in the air the severed head. Delighted with his trophy, he carries it about under his arm, places it in a charger in the center of the ring, and finally takes it back to the block wrapped up in the cloth and places it by the side of the headless trunk. He removes the cloth and then, in sport, places a lighted cigarette in its mouth. In a little while, you notice that the cigarette begins to glow. Smoke comes from the nose and the eyes roll. Evidently, the head has come to life. Not able to bear the horrible sight, he throws the cloth again over the head, seizes it, places it in its original position on the shoulders of the victim, kneads it to the body, and suddenly the figure rises, head and all, and bows to the audience, an orthodox clown. The trick is a good one and takes with the audience. The way in which it is done is explained in the second cut. As soon as the clown lies on the box and his head has been covered with the cloth, he passes his head through an invisible opening in the top of the box. An assistant inside of the box passes up the dummy head, which is an exact facsimile of the clown's head and face. This is seized by Harlequin, who makes such a sport of it as he sees fit. When he places it by the side of the trunk, in reality, 
he passes it through an opening in the top of the box to the assistant within, who substitutes his own head, which is painted to match the other two, in place of it. The other steps in the performance readily follow. The cloth, which the Harlequin always carries, conceals all the sleight of hand, and the whole performance is a series of surprises. Another favorite illusion of mine is the neo-occultism, which I think has the coolest illustrations in the book. On one side of a curtain sits a bespectacled gentleman eating breakfast, and on the other side sits a skeleton. And using X-ray technology, when the lights go down, you don't see any part of the man except for his eyeglasses, but you see the skeleton and everything on the table. I'm not going to read the entire description here because it's kind of long, but this illusion, which produces what the Hopkins book refers to as a successful, quote, spirit seance, end quote, as opposed to an actual seance, which usually fails, quote, because the spirits are in an ill mood and disposed to be coyish, end quote, seems to encapsulate the predominant view among illusionists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As I discussed in my previous episode, in addition to allying themselves with the scientific community, Maskelyne and Cook and Houdini, among others, were noted skeptics who publicly debunked spiritualists. The sense I get from this illusion is that it is more for the purposes of entertainment than for trying to debunk, but I do think skepticism can be seen in this description. The following will prove a scene sufficiently weird to put the most intrepid worldlings in a flurry if someone of our friends takes it into his head to give them the mysterious spectacle thereof before they have read an exposure of the trick. The first figure that we present herewith exhibits a Rumkorf coil, which is placed here to show the operation in its entirety. But as the first effect of its vibrations would be to attract the attention and consequently the suspicions of the spectators, whom it is a question of transporting into the domain of the marvelous. This apparatus is relegated to some distant room. The current that produces the X-rays is led into the crook's tube by wires. This apparatus, moreover, which is not very bulky, may be placed behind a door or be concealed under black cloth. The objects designed to become luminous are placed as near to the tube as possible. In the experiment under consideration, a diner, who is doubtless nearsighted since he wears eyeglasses, is about to do justice to his breakfast. Armed with a knife and fork, he attacks his beefsteak, but he is assuredly a greater eater than drinker, since he contents himself with water, while his light consists of a single candle. A black curtain on the other side of the table conceals from the spectators a skeleton covered with zinc sulfide. 
let us now put out the light and set the Rumpkorf coil in action. What a surprise! A plate, a glass, a water bottle, and a candle shine in space with the light of glowworms. A sinister guest in the form of a skeleton sits opposite the place occupied by the nearsighted gentleman, who has disappeared, and whose eyeglasses alone have held their own before this ghastly apparition. Finally, to complete the illusion, hands are seen moving over the heads of the spectators, and those multiply and then disappear, only to appear anew. It must be remarked that, in order to render the experiment more conclusive, it is allowable for the most incredulous members of the party to tie the gentleman tightly to his chair and, if they desire, to hold his hands and feet during the entire time of the experiment. It is scarcely necessary to explain how the latter is performed. The x-rays pass through the black cloth on the door that conceals the crook's tube, and also through the body of the gentleman, and render luminous the glass objects covered with zinc sulfide. As for the mysterious hands, those are simply gloves covered with the same substance and fixed to the extremity of long sticks that are moved in all directions by confederates. Such scenes may naturally be varied to infinity. And the spirit of invention is so fertile, there is no doubt that before long, ladies will be giving a place in the program of their soirees to this up-to-date spiritualism. The next illusion I'm going to look at, which is called She, also conveys a sense that death might not be final, as we saw with the decapitation trick. It's interesting, I think, that the name of this illusion references the gender of the magician's assistant rather than what actually happens in the act. One would think a magician could use a male assistant just as easily for this illusion, but throughout history, women have been more closely associated with witchcraft and mediumship, and I think it's still largely the case. And when it comes to stage magic, we mostly think of men as the so-called masters and women as their willing assistants. The woman in this act is also referred to as the victim a few times, which I initially found that interesting as well, but then I did notice that term also used to apply to other assistants throughout the book. But some of the information that I found on JSTOR goes into all this a bit more, and I look forward to coming back to this topic when I go over all that. But for now, I'll just say I mainly chose this one because I think it's easy to picture the sense of awe that a late 19th century audience may have had seeing this staged in a large theater, as opposed to a fairground stage or tent, which is where magic shows were normally held prior to the Victorian era. In this scene, a beautiful young lady mounts a table arranged in an alcove formed by a folding screen. Above the victim is suspended a cylindrical cloth screen. The screen is lowered to the level of the table, completely enclosing the subject. The table apparently has four legs, and four candles shown beneath it indicate that the space underneath the table is open and clear. 
the cylindrical screen is shown to be entire with openings only at the upper and lower ends. And no openings are seen in the folding screen, which partly surrounds the table. Upon the firing of a pistol, the occupant of the table is ignited and smoke and flame bursting from the screen indicate that the work of destruction is going on within. When the fire is burned out, the screen is lifted and nothing remains upon the table but a few smoldering embers and a pile of bones surmounted by a skull. Close observation does not reveal any way of escape for the young woman. It is, however, obvious that the magician cannot afford to sacrifice such a subject every evening, and the spectators are forced to conclude that the whole affair is a very clever trick. In fact, it is simply a modification of the beheaded lady and numerous other tricks based upon the use of plain mirrors. The table has but two legs, the other two which appear being simply reflections. The central standard supports but two candles, the other two being reflections. Underneath the table, and converging at the central standard, are arranged two plane mirrors at an angle of 90 degrees with each other and 45 degrees with the side panels of the screen. By means of this arrangement, the side panels, which are of the same color as the central or back panel, are reflected in the mirror and appear as a continuation of the back panel. The triangular box, of which the mirrors form two sides, has a top composed in part of the tabletop and in part I won't say too much about the fourth illusion that I'm going to look at, which is called After the Flood, but it does strike me as one that might sound familiar to you if you've ever seen a magic show on a stage or on a screen. Even if you haven't seen this particular trick before, you can probably think of one or more that's, that's similar. As with the previous illusion, this one makes use of a female assistant, specifically a, quote, beautiful Eastern woman, end quote, which I'm emphasizing because this is another point addressed in the material that I found on JSTOR that I am going to go over in my next episode. In this illusion, the curtain rises and shows upon the stage what is to be interpreted as a representation of Noah's Ark, a rectangular box with ends added to it which, curving upward, give it a boat-like aspect. It stands upon two horses or trestles. The cut shows the arc in its entirety. The exhibitor opens it on all sides, swinging down the ends and the front and back lids and raising the top. It will be noticed by the observant spectator that the back lid is first dropped and that the assistant helps throughout, the reason of which will be seen later. The skeleton or frame of the structure is now disclosed and it is seen to be completely empty. It is now closed, this time the back lid being swung into place last and all is ready for the flood. 
This is represented by the water poured in ad libitum through a funnel inserted in an aperture in the upper corner. To the audience, it seems as if the ark were being filled with water. In reality, the water simply runs through a pipe, carried through one of the legs of the trestle, and so down beneath the stage. The management of the flood is illustrated in our cut. After the flood, the exit of the animals from the ark is next to be attended to. Opening windows in its front, a quantity of animals and birds are taken out. Ducks, chickens, pigeons, cats, dogs, and a pig are removed and run around on the stage or fly about. And it is wondered how so small an enclosure could contain such a collection. It is also to be observed that none of the animals are wet. The water has not reached them. More, however, is to follow. For the exhibitor now lets down the front and a beautiful Eastern woman reclines gracefully in the center of the ark, which has only room enough to accommodate her. Where the animals came from and how they and the woman could be found in the ark, which when opened before the audience seemed completely empty and how they escaped the water are the mysteries to be solved. Our cut completes the explanation. The ends which are swung up and down in the preliminary exhibition of the ark are the receptacles which accommodate the animals and birds. They are stowed away in these, are swung up and down with them, and are taken out through apertures in their fronts. The woman, the other tenant, is fastened originally to the back lid. When the ark is opened for inspection, this lid is swung down, ostensibly to enable the audience to see through the ark, in reality, to prevent them from seeing through the illusion. For, as stated, it is swung down before the front is opened. And as it goes down, the woman goes with it and remains attached to it and out of sight of the audience who only see the rear side of the door as it is lowered. I'm going to start wrapping up my examination of stage magic that you were likely to see performed during the Victorian era here. Honestly, there were so many allusions in the Hopkins book that it was hard for me to narrow it down. So ultimately, I tried to present a few that, first of all, convey some themes that I've touched upon in previous episodes of this show, including death, spiritualism and seances, the sense of wonder many people felt to, due to the many advances in science and technology that were happening during this era, and that also were different enough from each other to hopefully give you a sense of how magicians during this period frequently tested boundaries of what could be done and in many cases, competed with each other in dramatic and often very public ways. And also, while I felt I should give you a little justification as to why I chose each of these illusions, I also wanted to keep my analysis out of it as much as possible for now and let the illusions speak for themselves. Because while the illustrations in Hopkins's book justifiably receive a great deal of attention,
A lot of the descriptions are written in a witty way that I think is enjoyable to read. I would love to know what you think about all of this. You can email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you have a few options. You can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave a tip on the Good Pods app or on my link tree at https colon slash slash linkter period ee slash the Victorian Variety Show one word. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you happen to be listening, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to examining the world of 19th century stage magic from a more critical perspective in two weeks. So I hope you'll join me then. I said at the beginning of my last episode that I'd be breaking up this topic into at least two parts because this topic is so interesting and so broad that I wanted to cover myself just in case, and I'm really glad I did that. But for now, I'm going to leave you with one more trick from the Hopkins book. This one is called The Magic Rosebush, and I chose it because... Well, what magic act would be complete without some type of flower trick? In Lectures on Chemistry, the professor, in speaking of aniline colors, in order to give an idea of the coloring power of certain of these substances, performs the following experiment. Upon a sheet of paper, he throws some aniline red, which, as well known, comes in the form of iridescent crystals. He shakes the surplus off the paper into the bottle, so that it would be thought that nothing remained on the paper. If, however, alcohol, in which aniline colors are very soluble, be poured over the paper, the latter immediately becomes red. This experiment may be varied as follows. Instead of scattering the aniline over paper, it is dusted over the flowers of a white rosebush, and the flowers are shaken so as to render the dust invisible. And then, when a visit is received from an amateur of horticulture, we tell him that we have a magic rosebush in our garden the flowers of which become red when alcohol or cologne is poured over them. The experiment is performed with the aid of a perfumery vaporizer, and the phenomenon causes great surprise to the spectators who are not in the secret. <laughs>